Chapter 2 of the Critique of Dogmatic Theology by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Leo Wiener. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In the Symbol of Faith, in the Epistle of the Eastern Patriarchs, in Philarets Catechism, in the Dogmatic Theology, the first dogma is the dogma about God. The general title of the first part is, Of God and Himself and of His General Relation to the World and to Man. Theologia Apoli, that is, Simple Theology. That is the title of the first part. The second part will be about God and the Savior and about his special relation to the human race, Theologia Economici, Theology of House Management. If I know anything about God, if I have had any conception about him, these two titles of the two parts destroy all my knowledge of God. I cannot connect my conception about God with a conception about God for whom there exist two different relations to man, one general, the other special. The concept special attached to God destroys my conception about God. If God is the God whom I have comprehended, he can have no special relation to man. But perhaps I do not understand the words right, or my conceptions are incorrect. Farther on I read about God. Division 1. Of God in Himself. Now I am waiting for the expression of the truth about God, revealed by God to men for their salvation and known to the Church. But before getting an exposition of the revealed truth, I meet with Article 9, which speaks of the degree of our cognition of God according to the doctrine of the Church. This article, like the introduction, does not speak of the subject itself, but in the same way prepares me to understand what is going to be expounded. The Orthodox Church begins all its doctrines about God in the symbol of faith with the words, I believe, and the first dogma which it wishes to impart consists of the following. God is incomprehensible to the human intellect. Men can know him only in part, as much as he has been pleased to reveal himself for their faith and piety, an irrefutable truth. Page 66. To those who are not used to this kind of an exposition, I must explain, for I myself did not comprehend it for a long time, that by irrefutable truth is to be understood that not that God is incomprehensible, but that he is comprehensible, but only comprehensible in part. In that does the truth lie. The truth, it goes on to say, is clearly expounded in the Holy Scripture and is disclosed in detail in the writings of the Holy Fathers and teachers of the Church, on the basis even of common sense. The holy books preach on the one hand that a. God dwelleth in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, and that b. Not only for men, but for all his creatures, his being is unknown, his judgments unsearchable, and his ways past finding out. And that see, God alone knows God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son. Page 67. On the other hand, the holy books announced to us that the invisible and incomprehensible one was pleased to appear to men and that God is inaccessible to reason, but that his existence is comprehensible. Here are the truths. a. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, and still more. b. In the supernatural revelation, when he at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophet, hath in these days spoken unto us by his Son, and when this only begotten Son of God, appearing on earth in the flesh, gave us light and understanding that we might know the true God, and then preached his teaching through the apostles, having sent upon them the Spirit of truth, which searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Finally, the holy books assert that although thus the Son of God, being in the bosom of the Father, hath declared to us God, no man hath seen him. I beg the reader to observe the inexactness of the text. The actual text, John 1.18, runs like this. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. But nowhere does it say, Being in the bosom of the Father, hath declared to us God. For now we see the invisible one as with a glass in divining, and now we know the incomprehensible one only in part. I beg the reader to observe the incorrectness of this text, too. 
In the text cited, it does not say, now we know the incomprehensible one only in part. It does not say in part, nor is there a word said about the incomprehensible one, and even nothing is said about knowing God, but about love and human knowledge in general. Look at the whole chapter. All this chapter speaks only of human knowledge, which is imperfect, and evidently there is no purpose even then of speaking about the knowledge of God. Now we walk by faith, but not by sight. Page 68. For we walk by faith, not by sight, that is, we live. Here again nothing is said about the knowledge of God in part, but about living in faith. All these texts are adduced in order to prove that God is incomprehensible and comprehensible only in part. Again we find here an intentional mixing up of ideas. The author purposely mixes up these two ideas, the comprehensibility of the existence of God and the comprehensibility of God himself. When we speak of the beginning of everything, of God, we evidently recognize and comprehend his existence. But when we speak of God's essence, we obviously cannot comprehend that. Why then prove that he is comprehensible in part? If nothing in the world is completely comprehensible to us, then it is evident that God, the beginning of all beginnings, is absolutely incomprehensible. Why prove it? And why prove it in such a strange manner, by adducing incorrect words from John, which prove that no man has ever seen God, and inexact quotes from Paul, which refer to something quite different, to the proof of the comprehensibility of God in part? These strange texts and these strange proofs arise from this, that the word comprehensibility is used here and elsewhere in a double sense, in its natural sense of understanding, and in the sense of knowledge taken on trust. If the author had understood comprehensibility as comprehensibility, he would not have tried to prove that we can comprehend God in part, but would have admitted at once that we cannot comprehend him. But he understands here by the word comprehensibility, knowledge taken on faith, purposely mixing up this conception with the conception of the recognition of the existence of God. And so it turns out with him that we can comprehend God in part. When he adduces this text about our comprehending God through his creations, he has in mind the recognition of God's existence. But when he quotes the text that God spoke to the fathers through the prophets, and then through the Son, he has in mind the knowledge which is taken on faith, as we shall see later on. For the same reason he quotes Paul's text, that we walk by faith as a proof of comprehensibility, by which he means the knowledge taken on faith. By comprehensibility the author does not understand a more or less firm conviction of the existence of God, but a greater or lesser quantity of knowledge about God, though entirely incomprehensible, taken on faith. Farther on, he says, the Holy Fathers and the teachers of the Church have disclosed this truth in detail, especially in reference to the heretical opinions which have arisen in regard to it. The heretical opinions consist, in the author's opinion, in this, that God is entirely comprehensible and absolutely incomprehensible, but the truth, in the author's opinion, consists in this, that God is incomprehensible and at times comprehensible in part. Although the word in part is not at all used in what the author is talking about, and has not even external authority, although the word in the sense in which it is used here is not even used in the Holy Scripture, the author insists that God is comprehensible in part, meaning by it he is known in part. How can something comprehensible be known fully or in part? There is an exposition of two opinions of what is supposed to be extreme heresy, of those who maintain that God was absolutely comprehensible, and of others who maintain that God was absolutely incomprehensible, and both opinions are rejected, and an argument is adduced in favor of the comprehensibility and incomprehensibility. In reality, it is clear that neither opinion about the absolute comprehensibility and the absolute incomprehensibility has ever been expressed or ever could be expressed. In all these seeming arguments pro and con, we find this expressed, that God, by the very fact that he is mentioned, that he is thought and spoken of, is recognized as existing. But at the same time, since the conception of God cannot be anything but a conception of the beginning of everything conceived by reason, it is evident that God, as a beginning of everything, cannot be comprehended by reason. Only by following along the path of rational thinking can God be found at the extreme limit of reason. But at the moment this conception is reached, reason ceases to comprehend. 
It is this that is expressed by all the passages which are quoted from the Holy Scripture and from the Holy Fathers, seemingly foreign against the comprehensibility of God. From the profound, sincere statements of the apostles and fathers of the Church, which prove only the incomprehensibility of God, is deduced in a mere external manner the comprehensibility of God. It is the dialectic problem of theology to prove that God cannot be comprehended altogether, but that he can be comprehended in part. Not only is the reasoning purposefully twisted, but in these pages I for the first time came across a direct mutilation, not only of the meaning, but also of the words of the Holy Scripture. The real text of John 1.18, No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him, is rendered by different words. From the famous 13th chapter of the 1st Corinthians, which treats on love, one verse is quoted in a mutilated form in order to prove the thesis. Then follow the quotations from the Holy Fathers. The divinity will be limited if it is comprehended by reason, for conception is a form of limitation, says one of those whom the theology counts among the advocates of incomprehensibility. What I call incomprehensible is not that God exists, but what he is. Do not use our sincerity as a cause for atheism, says Gregory the Divine, whom the theology counts among the advocates of comprehensibility. From all this, the author concludes that God can be comprehended in part, meaning by the word comprehend, to receive the knowledge of him on faith, and proceeds to the exposition of the dogmas which will be a revelation of how God is to be comprehended in part. Like the introduction, this Article 9 does not expound the subject at all, but prepares us for the exposition of what follows. The purpose of this article consists apparently in preparing the reader to renounce his conception of God as God, as incomprehensible by his essence at the beginning of everything, and in preventing his daring to deny that information about God which will be imparted to him as truce based on tradition. This article concludes with a quotation from St. John Damascan, which expresses the idea of the whole. The deity is unspeakable and incomprehensible, for no man knoweth the Father but the Son, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Matthew 9.27 Even so the Spirit of God knoweth the things of God, just as the Spirit of man knoweth the things of a man. 1 Corinthians 2.11 Outside of the first blessed being, no one has known God, unless God has revealed himself to him. No one, not only of men, but even of the primordial forces, of the cherubim and seraphim. However, God has not left us in complete ignorance of himself, for the knowledge of God's existence God himself has implanted in the nature of each. In the creation itself, its keeping and its management, proclaim the deity, wisdom of Solomon 8, 5. Besides, at first through the law and the prophets, then through his only begotten Son, our Lord and God and Savior, Jesus Christ, God has communicated to us the knowledge of himself insofar as we are able to comprehend him. Page 73. In this conclusion, which expresses the idea of the whole, the internal contradiction is very startling. In the first part, it says that no one can comprehend God, nobody knows his ways and purposes, and here in the second part, it says, still God has not left us in ignorance, but through his prophets, his son, and the apostles, has let us know about himself insofar as we are able to comprehend him. But we have just said that we cannot comprehend God, and here we suddenly assert that we know he did not wish to leave us in ignorance, that we know the means in which he has used to the purpose of attaining his end, and that we know the real prophets and the real son and the real apostles whom he has sent to instruct us. It turns out that after we have recognized his incomprehensibility, we have suddenly discovered all the details of his purpose, his means. We judge of him as of a master who wishes to inform his laborers of something. One or the other, either he is incomprehensible and then we cannot know his purpose or actions, or he is entirely comprehensible, if we know his prophets and know that these prophets are not false but real. And so it turns out. For this reason, everything transmitted to us by the law, the prophets, the apostles, and the evangelists we accept, acknowledge, and respect, and we search after nothing else. Thus God, being omniscient and solicitous of the advantage of all men, has revealed everything which is useful for us to know, and has kept from us what we cannot grasp. Let us be satisfied with this and hold on to it, without removing the eternal landmarks or transgressing the divine tradition. Providence 22:28, page 74. If so, we involuntarily ask ourselves, 
Why were these prophets and apostles true, and not those who are regarded as false? It turns out that God is incomprehensible, and we are absolutely unable to know him, but that he has transmitted the knowledge of himself to men, not to all men, but to the prophets and apostles. And this knowledge is kept in holy tradition, and this alone we are to believe, because it alone the church is true, that is, those who believe in tradition, who observe the tradition. In the introduction we had the same. After long discussions about what a dogma is, the whole business was brought down to this, that a dogma was the truth because it was taught by the church, and that the church were the men who were united by faith in these dogmas. We have the same thing here. God may be comprehended in part, a little bit, and how to know him a little bit the church alone knows, and everything which it will tell will be a sacred truth. In the question of the dogma, we had a double definition of the dogma, as an absolute truth and as a teaching. And so the contradiction consisted in this, that the dogma was now one unchangeable truth, revealed from the very beginning, and now a teaching of the church, which has evolved by degrees. Here, in the question of comprehensibility, by which is understood knowledge on trust as taught by the church, the author contradicts himself. To the word comprehensibility, a double meaning is ascribed, the meaning of comprehensibility and of knowledge taken on trust. Neither St. John Damascan, nor Philoray, nor Meraki can help seeing that for the greater comprehensibility, we must have a greater clearness, and the affirmation that what I am told, I am told through people who by the church are called prophets, in no way can add any comprehensibility to the mind, and that we can only comprehend in part what is comprehensible. And so they substitute for the concept of comprehensibility, the concept of knowledge, and then they say that this knowledge has been transmitted by the prophets, and that the question of comprehensibility is entirely set aside. Thus, if the knowledge transmitted through the prophets makes God more incomprehensible than he has seemed to be before, this knowledge is still true. But in addition to this double definition, we also have the contradiction between the expressions of church tradition itself. Texts are quoted, and of these some deny the comprehensibility of God and others recognize it. It was necessary either to reject one or the other or to harmonize them. Theology does neither the one nor the other nor the third, but simply enunciates that everything which is to follow on the attributes of the divisions of God according to his essence and his person is the truth, because thus teaches the infallible church, that is, the tradition. Thus, as in the first case, in discussing the introduction, all the reasoning appears unnecessary, and all is brought down to this, that whatever is going to be expounded is the truth, because the church teaches it. Even thus, all the reasoning is unnecessary now, because the foundation of the whole doctrine is the infallible church. But here, in addition to this repeated method, for the first time appears the teaching of the church itself, the code of that doctrine, and in it we find an absence of unity. It contradicts itself. In the introduction, the foundation of everything was assumed to be the church, that is, the tradition of men who were united through the tradition. But there I did not yet know how this tradition was expressed. Here appears the tradition itself, that is, extracts from the Holy Scripture, and these extracts contradict each other and are connected by nothing but words. As I said in the beginning, I believe that the church was a carrier of truth, and having worked through the 73 pages of the introduction and the exposition of how the church teaches the dogmas and the incomprehensibility of God, I, to my sorrow, convinced myself that the exposition of the subject was inexact, and that into the exposition was accidentally or intentionally introduced irregular discussions about one, the dogma being an absolute truth and at the same time the instruction of that which the church regards as truth, two, that the announcement through the prophets, the apostles, and Jesus Christ of what God is is the same as the comprehensibility of God. In the discussions of either point there is not only obscurity but even unscrupulousness. No matter what subject I may wish to expound, no matter how convinced I may be of my incontestable knowledge of the whole truth in expounding the subject, I cannot act otherwise than to say, I am going to expound this and that, and this I consider the truth and for this reason, but I will not say that everything which I am going to say is an uncontestable truth. And no matter what subject I may be expounding, I cannot do otherwise than say, the subject which I am going to expound is not fully comprehensible. 
My whole exposition will consist in making it more comprehensible, and the greater comprehensibility of the subject will be the sign of the correctness of my exposition. But if I say, the subject which I am going to expound is comprehensible only in part, and its comprehensibility is given to me by a certain tradition, and everything which this tradition says, even when it makes the subject more incomprehensible still, and only what this tradition says, is the truth, then it is evident that no one will believe me. But maybe the method of this introduction was irregular, and the exposition of the revealed truths may still be regular. We shall listen to this revelation. End of chapter 2